Good morning, Mountainside. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Warren, for participating uh, in our worship today. Thank you for to all of you at home who are participating um, through singing, through listening, through writing in your praises, having your dialogues on the chat. Um, we are scattered in Christ together right now to worship God and to remember our life with God, and we're grateful to be doing that, like Misty said, even though distanced. Um, in close harmony with one another. Um, we bring a lot to this weekend. A lot is coming at us, and we bring a lot um, with us to this weekend. I was struck by that all week as I prepared for what I wanted to share from John chapter 14 today. Um, we bring some amazing things. There's some great stuff going on in our community. Uh, many of you have um, just generously donated portions or all of your um, stimulus checks that you received and those have gone into a fund and our compassionate action team is already busy um, utilizing that money to love neighbors on behalf of christ and through mountainside communion and so there's some really wonderful things happening that way um, we got a, a couple of different letters from people who've been worshiping with us maybe more consistently now than ever and um, just so thankful to get the positive feedback and the gratitude for for the work that we're doing as a church together, both in worship as well as in ministry. Um, we also got a really creative poem from a neighbor, an anonymous poem that shared with us um, how lovely it is to be in quarantine so that the 303 West building is a little less active and less going on uh, in the neighborhood. And so we're not quite sure what to do with that artistic um, offering, but um, we, we bring a lot to this, to this weekend. Uh, we all know that we're living in a pandemic and we're sheltering in place and we've been talking about that for the last few weeks and so we bring those realities the diversity of realities in this shared experience um, we bring that this weekend um, this month is mental health awareness month and um, what an appropriate month to be given the chance to intentionally focus in on the importance of um, mental health and so I've been thinking about our mental health providers in our congregation and mental health providers that work with many of us in our church. And I'm so thankful for the work that they do in coming alongside of us and so many people um, in supporting mental health. I'm thinking of people in our church, um, many of us, maybe more so than, than ever, who um, are struggling with mental health during this time of isolation and shelter. And, and so we bring that with us um, to this space here this morning. And I'm thankful that we can. And I'm thankful that we can be grateful for people who are working with, with those of us who struggle. And I'm thankful that we can be honest about where we're at in our mental health. Um, today is Mother's Day. Um, and that holds a lot for a lot of people. And like we've already articulated, we're so thankful for those women in our church, um, whether they're moms or not, those women in our church who mother um, our kids, who mother all of us. Um, we are so thankful and grateful for the influence of the women in our church, on our church life, as well as on the ministry that our church is involved in. Um, and a day like this also raises challenges and griefs and mourning and loss. It raises realities in our society um, that are still real um, of male privilege and, 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 and at times toxicity, masculine toxicity. And so we, we come at this weekend in this passage with a lot today. 
And then obviously this week we have learned of the murder of Ahmad Arbery and the powers and principalities of white supremacy and normativity um, are in our face. And I've been struck this week to, to just to remember that these powers are in our face always, um, especially for our black brothers and sisters, but all people of color. Um, and, and incidences like this that we are learning about um, are devastating and um, are a sobering reminder of the powers and principalities that still affect us um, today. And so we bring that um, also to this passage. Um, and then we read this passage, one we've heard many times in various ways, and I, I want to just briefly hold this together um, because I think there's something maybe for us um, today. In John chapter 13, right before the passage that we read, um, there's this scene of Jesus with his disciples. He's having Passover meal with them. And there's a flow. It begins with Jesus saying that he's going to wash their feet, and Peter saying, uh, you're not washing my feet. I'm going to wash your feet. And and Jesus says, if you're going to be with me or connect with me, I need to do this. And so Peter, thinking Jesus is about to win this victory, this powerful victory over Rome and the religious leaders, he says, hey, whatever it takes to be with you, that's fine. Wash my feet, my hands, my head, wash whatever. But what it reveals is he's not quite getting it because Jesus goes on to say, yeah, all of you who are my followers, you too need to wash one another's feet. Jesus predicts his betrayal by Judas in this setting. Judas leaves um, the room. Jesus then calls his disciples to love one another. That this thing, this new thing that's about to happen is about foot washing and love of one another. And then Peter um, wants to follow Jesus so eagerly. And Jesus says, you can't follow me. And P Peter's pretty pretty focused on being with Jesus. Um, and Jesus tells him, in fact, you're, you're going to deny me, Peter. And so this is a troubled group of people. Even Jesus is said to have been troubled um, when he's talking about his betrayal. It's a troubled group of friends who, who Jesus then says in chapter 14, 1, don't be troubled. Trust in God. That's kind of a hard thing to hear when you're a troubled group. And I think it's super important to note that Jesus also was troubled in this group. We come to this, this weekend troubled for all the things, aspects of the things that I, that I shared in, in opening. Um, we are troubled by the events of our day. We are troubled by sickness and death, we're troubled by isolation and loneliness. We're troubled by a masculinity that's toxic often. We're troubled by um, white normativity and supremacy that um, is always ugly and is extremely ugly this week. Um, and Jesus' invitation, uh, similar to Joshua's invitation to the people of Israel, earlier in the Old Testament is don't be troubled. Trust 
in God. Joshua says to the people of Israel, be strong and courageous. And Jesus says that he is going um, ahead of them to a place where he's going to prepare, that he's going to prepare for them. And we know, and we've moved through Lent, that this, this road that he's about to take is the road of the cross. And it's so important to remember that when Jesus says that he is going to the cross, he is going there to humbly and lovingly and forcefully, powerfully defeat all of those powers and principalities that affect those disciples in that room who are troubled. And he is going there to defeat all of those powers and principalities that trouble us today. And Jesus, in all his faithfulness, goes ahead to the cross where these powers, isolation and individualism that we remember today, these powers of sickness, these powers that cause challenges with our mental health, whether they be relational or social, economic, biological, um, these powers that affect us, powers of a masculinity that is toxic, powers of, of white supremacy that permeates so many, all of our systems and ways of life. That the church gathers on a day like this and Jesus looks at us in all our trouble and says, don't be troubled because I have gone and I have defeated those things on the cross. And that is a good, good word. And yet it is on a day like this, it may not be enough. We want to see action. And Jesus gives his disciples this metaphor. He says, I'm going to prepare a house for you. And I want us to focus on that today. I'm going to my father's house and it is a house that has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going there? So often we read this passage as if it's this like future thing that happens once we're done with this life. But, but anytime we're talking about the presence of God in the scriptures, it is not just the future. It is not just the present. It is not just the past. It is an always type of thing. We are caught up in a house that God has built and we're invited to live in that house now and that house has a lot of space. That house has space for all of humankind that are made in the image of God. And so we, as the church, are gathered not just to hear a message that all those powers and principalities have been defeated. We are gathered to proclaim that we know that those things have been defeated and that we are going to live as if they're defeated because they are defeated. We are going to live that 
way now. God's house has room to spare uh, for all of humankind. The fullness of humanity on equal ground. Um, it is a gift for all. Um, God has, Jesus has gone ahead and prepared that place for us and says that he'll return to be with us so that we might be with him so that we might also be with God in this wide open house with lots of space for all. The passage goes on and there's some great questions. I love that there's all these pressing questions for Jesus in this story and Jesus takes them and welcomes those who question in. But at the end of this story, um, Jesus calls his people to prayer. Um, he says, I assure you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. We are called to do the works that Jesus does. We are called to prepare places, to prepare, prepare rooms that are wide open spaces for all of humanity to live and dwell. Um, Jesus says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name when you are about these types of things so that God can be glorified. And when you ask me for these types of things in my name, I will do it. And so Mountainside Communion Church, we, I think in this passage, we are called to be people who in the power of the Spirit create rooms that are big, create rooms that are spacious. And we do that through prayer. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. Prayers of intercession, thanksgiving, praise, and on weeks like this, I think, prayers of truth-telling, prayers of lament, prayers of grief and mourning, um, because things aren't as they should be yet. And so we need to pray, and we need to do it with our mouths, we need to do it with our hearts, and most importantly, we need to do it with our bodies. Um, the Immigration Resource Center um, has a board, as you all know, and um, one of our board members' name is John Williams. And John is the director of the Center for Racial Reconciliation at Fellowship Church. He's an amazing member of our IRC board. He's one of those board members that I thought, I'm gonna just see if he might do this. And then he said to me, well, I'm going to pray about it when I asked him. And I thought, Ugh, I don't know if that's a good sign or not. <laughs> um, and uh, I was thrilled when he came back and agreed to be um, with us. Um, so John um, shared some reflections on our current situation. And they connect beautifully with, I think, what this passage may be calling us to. And so I've asked John if he would share, if we could share his reflections, and he agreed. I think he might be worshiping with us even now. So I want to share this video of John and his reflections, um, specifically on the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Um, and so we're going to go to that right now. Hey, this is John Williams, and I want to share my thoughts on the Ahmad Arbery murder. Maya Angelou once said in a BBC interview, I have no bitterness, none. Because bitterness is like cancer, it eats the host. 
What I have is a readiness to rage, and if I see injustice anywhere, I channel that rage. She goes on to say, I speak up. I do something about it, and I don't harbor or nurture even a little kernel of bitterness. This week for me, I felt rageful and I felt angry, but I refuse to be bitter because just like Maya Angelou, I know that I must speak up and do something. So the question becomes, how do I express anger and not become bitter? Well, for me first, I allow the anger and the rage to metabolize through my body. I, I, I allow the full weight of that anger to go all the way through my body. Christians are generally afraid of anger and white folks are afraid of black anger. But anger is important because anger has its place. Anger has fire and fire moves things. Anger is legitimate. Anger is legitimate emotion wired into our systems and we have it for good reason. Anger lets us know when something or someone has crossed our boundaries. Anger can give us the motivation to move forward, burst through fear and get unstuck. More importantly, the Bible gives us permission to be angry. Indeed, it says, be angry and sin not. So I'm entitled to my anger and I won't allow anyone to take it away from me. When I was younger, I was afraid of anger. In fact, I was told, not by my parents, but by the way black and white folks interacted, that you cannot be angry, especially as a black boy or as a black man. Anger can get you killed Anger can destroy uh, relationships and anger impacts your mobility. So instead of allowing anger to have a dreadful place, I replaced it with fear. Unfortunately, fear, this fear controlled me. And if I'm being truthful, fear still raises its ugly head and tries to move me from who God created me to be. Fear says you have to be respectable. You have to be dignified and you have to be silent about things concerning justice so as not to make waves. It also led me to believe that if I simply act respectable, that that respectability would shield me from bad things and make me acceptable. But here's the problem or the crazy reality. Just being black, doing everyday human things can get me killed. It does not matter if I'm angry or fearful. In fact, I can enter a coffee shop, barbecue at the park, drive my car, attempt to unlock and open the door of my home, hold a product in a department store, play in a park, ask for directions, fall asleep in a university library, attempt to move items out of my house, reserve an Airbnb. I can even run 2.23 miles and I'm still at risk for my life. Now, I've been a dad for 25 years. Yeah, let that sink in. My daughter Elise, she's the same age as Ahmad. And my son Jonathan is 22. My son Jonathan is a fitness freak. And since he was a little boy, he loved to run. In fact, he's run track for 15 years. He still loves to run. When he was younger, he ran everywhere. But as he got older, I told him, you can't run, but in only two places a track and a gym. Our current neighborhood is considered safe and diverse, but I do not want him to run by himself. I raise my kids to be respectable. 
I determined that my kids would have all the opportunities that every white kid had. That was the goal. They were the standard. So my wife and I did as much as we could to afford private sports, acting lessons, academic tutors, travel around the world, surround them with wonderful multi-ethnic family and friends, and attend multi-ethnic churches, all with the goal that they would be comfortable with anyone they encountered. I still think that some of those things are important, but in, those, in the most quiet moments when I was by myself and when I was really honest, my ultimate goal was to teach them to be acceptable to white people. Now, many of you guys have heard me talk about internalized racial oppression. That taught me how to act, how to parent, and I taught my kids how to do things. I taught them to bottle their anger and to not make waves. I did this despite having a deep understanding that it really doesn't matter. That there are times, more often than not, that at the end of the day, to many, many white people, and in our current racial construct, my kids are black. And no matter how successful, how friendly, or how kind they become, they still will never be fully accepted by the larger society. It was not until about five years ago that I really started to challenge this notion of respectability and acceptance. That I truly understood what author Ibram X. Kendi said, the only thing wrong with black people is that we think there's something wrong with black people. And the only thing exceptional about white people is that we think that they are exceptional. Put in Christian terms, each of us are made in the image of God, but there are systems in place that cause us to show favoritism to some and to despise others. Second, I can express anger without bitterness by lamenting. There are a wide variety of ways to lament. We can weep, we can cry, we can grieve, we can mourn, we can holler, we can complain to God, we can write, and we can even punch a punching bag. But know that at the core of lament is truth-telling. In this, we are able to express the truth of what happened and, that, and what caused the agony, the pain, and the death. This brings me to the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey. For three days, I've been distraught. I've cried, I've mourned, I've talked to close friends, and I've punched a punching bag that's right behind me. Yesterday, I punched the bag 74 times, one punch for each day that the Georgia criminal system sat and dismissed this atrocity. Another punch for every citizen in that neighborhood who sat silently by and never demanded justice. And another punch for the churches that failed to make that neighborhood inviting and safe for everyone. Oftentimes, most people's analysis of a situation like this is to only look at the perpetrators and victims. Rarely does the analysis extend to the entire community. When an injustice happens, it is never just the perpetrator and the victim involved in the incident. There's also the state and the bystanders, and unfortunately, the church. John 6, 61 and verses, six, uh, verses 60 and 61 says that, Jesus perceived the crowd saying, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. And Jesus said to, the, to, said to them, does this offend you? I challenge you today to listen to this hard teaching. My anger moved me from the punching bag to critiquing the three pillars of our society that failed Ahmad, the state, the community, and the church. 
First, the state, according to the police report and the letter from the district attorney, they conducted, uh, they, I'm sorry, they concluded that no law was broken. The DA went as far as to state that the two perpetrators were actually defending themselves and acting responsibly. Notwithstanding the fact that they had the video that clearly showed that neither one of them were in any danger and, in fact, instigated the whole incident. Nor did they compare the surveillance footage that one of the assailants relied on to give him cause to be reasonably suspicious of Ahmad. The next was the community. It's hard to imagine that no neighbor came out of their home after the gunshots, that no neighbor called the police, that no one in the community questioned or demanded a copy of the police report to see if the evidence was properly collected. No neighbor cared that a 25-year-old black man was shot in cold blood on their street that they live on. No neighbor picketed the suspect's house or the police department demanding that justice and real safety be restored. Indeed, all it was was two men who murdered a man who now resided in their neighborhood. For 74 days, no one did a thing. What should have happened during those 74 days is every single day that there was no investigation, nor an arrest, that every community member that was able should have protested and marched to the police department with their guns and demanded that justice be served. Finally, and unfortunately, the church. In fact, every church has a biblical mandate to call out all injustices and demand that justice be served. Their demands needed to be like drops of water that gathered until justice rolled down like a mighty stream. In short, the onus of calling and demanding justice should not have rested solely on Ahmad's family and the black community. Every single churchgoer in that community should have shouldered that burden. Since the release of the videotape, many of my friends, my white friends and colleagues have asked me, what should they do? What can be done? Well, upon reflection, I propose the following actions. I need you to become so outraged when you hear black brothers and sisters share their stories of racial injustice, or when you see and hear about racial injustice happening in your community. I need you to be so moved that and so enraged that you vote out prosecutors and police chiefs that do not believe that black lives matter. We need you to vote in prosecutors and police chiefs who believe that black lives matter. I'd ask that you call those who are in the office and demand that justice be done, and that you go and protest every single day until justice is done, that you learn the racial history of your community so that you're able to place every racial incident in its historical context. And oh, there's one more thing that you can do in addition to the above. If you see my son Jonathan running in your neighborhood, remember that he's 22 years old, he's exceptionally kind, he's generous, he's goofy, and he has a sweet spirit. Thanks. Now Christ has gone ahead of us and has gone to the Father whose house has many, many rooms. And Christ has called us to do this work and to do it 
through our prayer, prayer with our words and prayer with our bodies and prayer in our work and prayer in our households. Um, John is a friend and a guide in this work of prayerful, of a prayerful life um, that makes room and dismantles those things which keeps rooms from being made. Thank you, John, for sharing. Thank you for chiming in on the on the chat. We love you too, and we're great. We're so grateful to have you as a part of, to be a part of this work with you. Um, we're gonna pray together now, and we're gonna do that um, on on the chat like we have in weeks past. We're gonna pray the prayers of God's people, um, and may this be a time where we come to God, um, seeking God's heart, calling out these things um, that we've been talking about may it be a time where we confess and repent and lament and grieve and give thanks and praise um, Naomi's going to come and, and lead us in this time of prayer <laughs>